What's up, everybody? It's Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief. And together, this is our What's the Headline podcast. What's happening, man? What's going on, man? Uh, it's, it's good to be doing this. Doing it yeah. uh, two days later than usual. We're doing this on a Sunday like the old days. Yeah, I'm going to pretend like it's Monday because we got a big announcement today. So, Word, uh, I like that. <laughs> you wanna, should we start again? <laughs> nah, man, let's leave it. Let's, let's, let's uh, leave it. It's Groundhog perfect. Day. It's yes. Groundhog Day, you know what I mean? So, and, uh, and I'm Ned Ryerson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How's your week started, man? It was, it was cool, man. If you could tell by my face, I got a little bit of, uh, I got a little bit of sun. I've been doing some traveling. So, uh, man, it's good. It's, it's hectic, but it's a good hectic. How about you? It's good, man. Where, where'd you go? Man, I was in um I was in Central PA at a uh, a car event that I go to two or three times every year. It is a dust bowl, um, but I was out there as I have since I was eight years old, linked up with my father and and another uh, kind of like uncle figure. So it was cool. It's funny though, like there's an auction. Um, years ago, I've I've actually run into Funk Flex at this uh at this event. Like he's come through, as you know, he's very much into muscle cars and um. I, I enjoy old cars, classic cars as well. So it's a cool event this year. It was more about just kind of fellowship than anything else. That's dope, man. Uh, I had a good weekend so far too. I went to see your, your guys beat up on my nets, your, your Philadelphia Sixers. I know they're not your team really, but, uh, and they did it without Embiid too. So that was, it was unfortunate, but I knew when they got the win on, on Thursday, it was going to be a wrap on Saturday. So, yeah, I've always been a fair weather fan the year you and I got really into it. Um, I mean, you were, you're the biggest basketball fan I know, but it was 2019 and, and you and I caught a playoff game together and, and that whole push, man, I got super into it, but I was, uh, I had one of those days after a hectic week. Um, my fiance and I walked around Philly yesterday, just like perfect weather, Popped in, got got a little bit of food, a couple of drinks, different spots, and wherever we were, the game was on. So it was cool to watch, and it was a, it seemed like it was a close game. Yeah, it was close up until you know maybe the fourth quarter, and then after that it was you know, and and the Nets never really had much of a chance. They were leading in the first quarter, but once the the Sixers took the lead, it was pretty much a wrap. So mm, yeah, it was good. That was entertaining. We had good seats, you know. Nice, nice. Is that what the uh, so you got a? A party bracelet on. Is that what that's for? Yeah, no, nah, this is uh, for my son's tournament. He's got tournaments too. So oh, uh, wow. got had two games last night, a uh, game today and another one after this and looking like they're going to win it. So dope, dope. I, 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 I'm, you know, go ahead, go root, root for your son. Yeah. They're under me undefeated this year, man. So, wow. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So, yo, we have an incredible, incredible announcement to make um, for people who've been rocking with us for a while. We did, a competition back in 2015 called Finding the Goat MC. 2014. Now always 2014? do that. Yeah. All oh, right. We started in 2014, but it ended in 2015. That's right. It was epic. So it started. Uh, it started like September, October of 2014, and went all the way until May of 2015. Um, it is the thing that like made Jake's voice even deeper than it than it was back then because. Man, it was a it was a marathon. Um, we took a hundred and I think sixty eight MCs. We had writing candidates as well, and we facilitated a tournament style competition where people could come and vote daily on who was the best MC. We did it bracket style, until we got down to one. 
when we started, we were relatively small. By the time we ended, this had really like just blown up to proportions that none of us had imagined. Um, we had our biggest single day ever at the time, um, the week of the finals. Um, coincided with uh, a huge Redman post, but I, I think that that played a big part of it too. Uh, by the end, some people were trying to hack the the, the competition, um, so we had to run another one. And the crazy thing is, we'll say this on record again, like people were like accusing us of fixing it and stuff like that. This was truly decided by the people. Um, you know, primetime example is that Jay-Z is my goat MC and Jay-Z lost in the Sweet 16 to MF Doom. Uh, so underdogs definitely had a big role in it. And at the very end, uh, the final the final one was between Eminem and Tupac, someone who we're going to talk about quite a bit today. Um, and uh, Eminem ended up winning that. So, um, uh, so you, uh, but you were the one like really shepherding this. So you want you want to talk a little well, bit? Well, I mean, it was your idea. One thing I want to add because one of the trends that that kind of irks me these days is when people play this or that on um, Instagram and Twitter, you know, and Facebook. Like, you know, somebody will say, you know, Supreme clientele or Iron Man, and they'll just put up. They might not even put up the artwork, and it. You know, especially at that time, the algorithms favored that. Like, you have commenters, you have debates, you have people coming back. But one of the things that I really believe set AFH apart was when we did this, we literally wrote, you know, what I would call Spotify, like DSP level bios for each of these MCs. We built playlists, we used um, really engaging images. Like, it was a celebration of the art form. And it was a great way to let our you know, you and I have talked about it before, like, you know, we're not here to be the voices of, you know, this is the best, this is the best. It's much more fun when it's a conversation. And we've really tried to cultivate an audience and use that as an opportunity for the audience to vote. And there absolutely were things that we did not agree with, um, you know, even down to maybe the very end, but it was something special. And yeah, it absolutely, it led to an inflection point for the brand and for our traffic and all of that but we went about it the slow cooked, tedious way. And that's, I think the way you and I have always tried to do things when it comes to AFH. Absolutely. Who's your go-to MC, by the way? You know, <laughs> it's, it's a t like my favorite, and we'll talk about it again, I'm wearing my shirt in honor of it. Shout out to CJ. Um, my favorite MC is Tupac. I would say my goat is, is probably like yours with Jay. Word. Um, yeah, man, it's a tough one. It's a really, really tough one because uh, Pac is almost in a different class for me. You know, he's he's almost like Ali, right? So Ali, I don't know, is the greatest boxer technically, you know, power-wise or anything like that, but he's the greatest because he's Muhammad Ali, right? Uh, because of everything he did um, out of the ring as well as in the ring and, you know, coming back, after like a huge hiatus, having been in prison, going to prison because of what he believed in, the activism that he had, uh, you know, just made him the greatest. And so I kind of put Tupac in that category. Um, but in terms of what, you know, in terms of impact in rap and, you know, just technical ability and success and, you know, business acumen and all that, Jay is my guy for that, you know. Um, so anyway, we did go it really helped to kind of establish us as an entity. It's the first time I really 
like fully grasped that the brand was bigger than any of us, you know, to your point, like, you know, Pac and Jay, neither one of them won, Eminem won. And we did it again. Uh, we did uh, Finding the Goat group. We did Finding the Goat producer. We started doing it for albums. And so it became a real franchise of ours. And today, uh, Monday, we are launching a partnership with my alma mater, BT to do this on a much, much bigger level. Uh, we're going to do Finding the Goat Crew. And that is something that, uh, you know, a person I worked with at BT for a long time, uh, Sam Walker, was a big fan of the Goat franchises when we did them and approached me years ago saying, hey, man, you guys should do crews or you should do regions. And amazingly, here we are a few years later doing this in partnership with BT. Um, and it's going to be, finding the crew but it's also a regional battle too uh it's going to be east coast west coast midwest and dirty south competing and so we'll establish the best crew of each region and then the best overall crew but incredibly excited about this um every time you vote uh there's every round that you vote in there's going to be an opportunity to win prizes like um a trip to the bt awards all expenses paid which is crazy and and several other like great items but uh, you know, what, what's your thought on this? Is this something you ever anticipated would happen when we started this franchise? You know, that, that, that 2015, when we finalized the greatest, you know, MC, the goat MC, I knew that it was special and I knew you and I talked about it right then. Like, this is something that we're going to continue to do, but exercise care, like not beat it into the ground, do it strategically at certain times of the year and, and certain points when our audience is around, um, I didn't know that it would ever go to the point of us partnering with somebody else. And I'm so proud of that. I'm so thankful of that. And what I really appreciate is that, that, that BET and, and again, shout out to Sam did that and acknowledged what AFH was doing, you know, almost a decade ago and, and watching that trajectory to partner. I mean, this has been a really cool experience. So I'm, I'm thrilled and I'm, I'm, I'm elated about it. Yeah, for sure, man, for sure. So, you know, we're going to be supporting this throughout socials on the site, but please go to BT.com, cast your votes. Uh, it's going to be a huge, huge reveal in the end, um, you know, once once that 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 crew is selected. Uh, but we'll be updating this regularly on the pod and on the site. Um, one thing, though, like who's your GOAT crew, if you had to name one today? Today? Um Man, it's a tie. And it's that same thing because the part of me, like the crew that I'm most familiar with, like since I got really into hip hop would probably be like the Death Row crew, you know, all of its different iterations over those five years and the affiliates and all of that. Like I'm super familiar with that, but purely like greatest when we're just talking about the music and the art and the impact, I got to go Native Tongues. Word. You know, that, so, you know, that raises a question like, what is a crew? Because you mentioned Death Row, right? A lot of people think of Death Row as a label, which it is, obviously. Um, you know, for me, a crew is, you know, a collective of artists who represent a particular banner. Um, and so sometimes that could be a label. Death Row, you know, have their own chains. Um, you know, they they rep the row on in person, Source Awards, things like that, on record a lot, a lot of collaborations together a lot of merch together, like very much um, an entity, a collective. Uh, Native Tongues, same thing, you know, uh, never put out a, an album together and, you know, different labels 
but native tongues were were repped on records quite a bit. Um, they featured each other on a lot of their, their songs. You know, that was absolutely a crew. I would say Bad Boy is like that too. And, you know, one of the things that's, that's changed is that record labels are no longer, um, well, there are some, like independent labels that come up like MM, like um, MMG and um, uh, CMG and um, uh, quality control groups like that and like labels like that are, are very much throwbacks to what we saw in the 90s and the, the 2000s. But, um, you know, the corporate record labels aren't like that anymore. So um, I think that that's a distinction, too. But the crew is kind of a slippery thing. But I think we all know it when we see it, you know, and, and a lot of times groups have chains like Rockefeller and things like that. But there's a there's a lot that I think goes into making a crew. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny, like you you we mentioned death row like dj quick i remember them be, there being like ads in the inserts you know or, or even in the magazines that said david blake was an artist which is quick's government name on death row but he never put out a project like he was always had another situation but would come in and produce would appear on compilations would appear like that source awards performance you look at a warren g you know i lump him in with that that's dre's half brother he's made incredible records with snoop and nate dog and different people that's crew like Little Kim never signed a bad boy, but when bad boy does a reunion tour, little Kim is part of it. You know, like we associate her with that movement. So yeah, it is like you said, a slippery slope, but I think it's a nice distinction um, between just labels, which can be very rigid and, and finite. Right. And, and just groups too, right. It's gotta be a collective of different artists. So multiple groups. You know, so for me, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to say, um, first of all, it's very hard to, to say one crew. So I'm going to say my crews by decade first, and then I'm going to see if I can like isolate that to one. So in the eighties for me, it's definitely native tongues, mm -hmm. you know, um, tribe, De La, jungle brothers, queen Latifah, Moni love black, uh, black sheep, um, uh, Chi Ali to some degree, like just everyone in that crew was super, super dope to me and tribe. One of my all time favorite groups, probably they and outcast are my two favorite groups. 90s um for 90s i gotta go death row that west coast you know gangster rap sound is still probably my favorite uh, of all time and you know with dre and snoop and i'll throw warren g in there since he was a close affiliate too um dog pound rage i mean all those all those artists were incredible to me um for the o's i gotta go rockefeller you know what jay did with uh with kanye and beans and freeway and then you know the the second version like rock uh rockefeller 2.0 with diplomats um really incredible crew there uh and for the the 2010s tde for sure you know tde with kendrick absol q j rock uh isaiah rashad like all those guys like super dope to me so what about this decade right now this decade, you know, we're a little early. We're, we're three years in. Um, you know, I I can't say that there's a crew that's really stepped up and like established itself for me right now that I'm thinking that I can think of. What about you? You know, you said TDE, and I know they very well could have earned their flowers in the last decade, but I got to give it up to Dreamville. Like mm. you know, there we are in the Dreamville chamber where Loot is making incredible albums. Earth Gang continues. I mean, you and I spent a good bit of time recently. Just I think J.I.D. made his best album to date last year. Like 
they've got all of these different forces and and to the point about crew like you know the 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 the, the latest creed soundtrack you know what a uh, king mez is doing on there um you know reason who is signed to tde could kind of be argued that he's part of the dreamville crew like continues to mess with them like we're getting to a really cool place so i would i would certainly acknowledge them right now and the others and again i mean the case could be made especially with 2019 but griselda i mean mm. griselda continues and again <clears throat> we're living in a time where we're seeing kind of that second wave where you know mac homie is making great stuff Boldy James comes over there to make something really interesting. Um, you know, Rome Streets, like, Griselda continues to. So, yeah, those two definitely ring to me right now. I co-sign both of those heavily. Uh, if you had to pick between one, which would which would you go? Oh, I'm man, going, you're trying to – you're going what? I'm going Dreamville. I'm going Dreamville. I love Griselda. I love their movement. I love everything they've done. And, uh, you know, they've done it brick by brick. They've done it with their own – um, with, with very little major label support. You know, they did have to deal with, with, with M and Shady, but most of their movement has been built by them. But Dreamville, man, like everybody on there is just an assassin and they're only getting better. You know, Jid is incredible. Loot is one of my favorite artists of the last five years. Cole, I mean, yeah, yeah. How about you? Yeah, I, I would go with Dreamville. And here's why too, is, is I know, you know, it was 2019, but what they did with Revenge of the Dreamers 3 is like, you know, fantasy camp for crews. Like, to bring in not just artists signing the label, but like people that you mess with for whatever it was, 20 days, you know, make an incredible album. And then at the same time, the star of the label, Cole, you know, uses his albums really just for himself. But they find these opportunities through compilations and soundtracks and Lucy's to just show you how tightly, tightly knit they are. And I think that that is so cool. And it makes, it makes me, if I was to have a label, like it, it just looks fun and, and exciting in a way that's not just copying the 1990s blueprint either. So um, I got to give it up to the Ville. Right. Okay. So all time crew, you still going, you still, you still keeping that one? Yeah, I'm still going to go, you know, I'm I'm still gonna go like native tongues, especially on the music side. And 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 Death Row was just that one when I was 12 years old. Like that was the crew I just I looked up to the most. But musically, what Native Tongues has done, just with diversity and the spectrum, and all of those entities, you know, bringing in other entities. Yeah, that's the one for me. Man, oh man, it's tough. It's tough. You know, those they're definitely in there for me. Um... Sheesh, between Rockefeller, Bad Boy, or Death Row, and Native Tongues, who would I go with? Man, uh, I gotta, I'm gotta. i going to go with Death Row. I'm going to go with Death Row. Um, I think that, you know, Dre is still making incredible music. Snoop is as well. Uh, you know, Daz Corrupt, Corrupt can, you know, still, both of them still making great music. I but. mean, and, and that crew is seemed fractured like you know it seemed fractured kind of when suge went to jail and, and tupac you know passed but what's so interesting is that crew's getting its new chapter obviously since last year snoop acquiring it and come on now i mean snoop and dre are working on an album called missionary which is a thematic follow-up to doggy style i mean that the death row feeling is in the best place it's been you know 25 years yeah, and the, and seeing the Super Bowl, the impact they have is 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 just everlasting. And so, but it's a really tough one. It's a really tough one. I could make an argument for each one of them. Sure. So with this goat crew, uh, in this first week, 
we're opening it up. Um, they're going to be 32, uh, ultimately, to compete for the title. But it's up for discussion who those 32 are. We are asking for feedback on your socials. Um, the, the the hashtag is uh, BT uh, Goat Crew. Uh, and uh, no, BT Greatest Rap Crew. Sorry. Thank you. BT Greatest Rap Crew. Hashtag on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, definitely weigh in with who you think should be a part of this. Um, there are examples on our site, examples on BT site, but it's fair game for everyone. And we, we're looking forward to like figuring out who the top 32 are going to be. And then ultimately starting to like wind down and have the people, not us, determine who the greatest rap crew is. It, it just to dovetail, like I love that aspect. Anytime you and I did did finding the goat, um, and we started doing it in other ways too. Like we started using it with our year end list, which I think we always wanted to have skin in the game, even if we kind of agreed that year end lists are played out. But we always had a chance for somebody to tell us we're wrong, or somebody not even tell us we're wrong, but to leave spots open for people to use their voice and not just play within the confines of what you or I or our staff at the time thought. And I love the fact in this partnership that that's carried over with BET. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Oh, whew. death row is also Tupac. So, uh, you know, Tupac direct. Uh, yeah. Death row for sure for me. Um, and speaking of Tupac, this weekend, there was a documentary docu-series that premiered on FX called Dear Mama. This is something that's been in the works for quite some time. And doing the research, I went back and saw that we had talked about it being in the Toronto Film Festival, and it was expected to premiere. We said Netflix uh, and on Netflix in December of 2022. Wow. Uh, but... Uh, this is an FX. Do you know if that changed or something? Because I, I, I thought, hmm, when I read that. Yeah, no, I, I definitely remember it being FX, but I, or excuse me, I definitely remember reading Netflix, but obviously FX is in strong partnership with Hulu. So something must have transpired. Um, but I know that even before that, we covered it last year when, um, you know, Alan Hughes spoke on it, the director and kind of creator behind this. But yeah, no, it, it landed on Hulu and it also aired live on FX Friday night. Yeah, so this is, there's a lot of interesting context around this. So Alan Hughes of the Hughes Brothers, uh, they wrote and directed Minister Society, you know, classic film. Tupac was supposed to originally be in that film. He was going to play uh, Sharif, a character embodied by Vondi Sweet. And um, Tupac had a problem with that. This is discussed in the documentary. Alan Hughes has talked about this quite a bit over, over the years, too. Pac didn't want to be a um, nonviolent Muslim without having the backstory articulated about why he got to that place, because he believed that in the 1990s, uh, people weren't going to be nonviolent because of just the circumstances of the country. And so he wanted to have the backstory to explain how this person could get into that space before being that. And so they had a falling out about it. Uh, Alan Hughes had to fire Tupac. And, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, it led to a scuffle between them. Um, Tupac says that he beat Alan Hughes up. Alan Hughes says that uh, Tupac and 10 other dudes jumped him. And, uh, you know, uh, Tupac ended up um, actually being prosecuted for this because he incriminated himself on Yo! MTV Rats by talking about beating up Alan Hughes again. Uh, so it's it's crazy um, for a lot of people that Alan Hughes would do this because of that complicated history. But 
And this is one of the brilliant things about the docuseries is that they break the fourth wall, uh, which is part of the reason why I wanted to do it here too. Um, you know, and Alan Hughes is actually interviewed in the documentary um, after someone says, yo, how could you be doing this given your, your relationship? And he explains that that one incident occurred, but, but prior to that, he and Tupac had a very, very uh, close relationship for years. And so he doesn't look at it as being defined by just that one incident. In a lot of ways, uh, you know, I think he's a filmmaker is probably the best suited to do it, given that deep relationship that he did have directly with Pop. But what are your thoughts on that? 100%. And I love the fact that they addressed it. One thing to note is, is, you know, the Hughes brothers did three music videos for Tupac before Menace to Society. And it's addressed in the docuseries and, and <clears throat> very illuminating to me. Um, but they did Trapped, Brenda's Got a Baby, and When My Homie Calls. They did those three videos and their profile was rising at the same time Pox was. And yeah, they, they unpack it. I agree. I mean, the Hughes brothers were deeply involved in the defiant ones back in 2017, which you and I covered immensely on Ambrosia for heads. And I thought that was a really brilliant um, documentary that covered Dr. Dre, his career and Jimmy Iovine's career kind of parallel and dear mom is doing the same. I mean, it is Tupac Shakur's story, but it's a Fanny Shakur story too, which I often think is sometimes reduced to a B story and looking at Pox and we're living in a time of, of, you know, I think telling women's stories, you know, on equal level. And, and she was, you know, a feminist, a black Panther, a single mother, all of these different things. So I love the fact that they've approached it this way. And I could not think of a better person to do it than uh, Alan for sure. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's great you say that. It is called Dear Mama. And for me, like, we we know Pac's story. We've heard Pac's story a lot over the years. We've seen films. We've written a ton of articles. There's been, you know, countless accounts of, like, you know, the 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 shooting of Pac, like, all of that we, we know. Um, it's always cool to see it laid out in a comprehensive chronological order. But uh, a feigning story we know somewhat, but to see it, like for me, like I, I've found her story even more compelling as this doc, uh, as part of this docuseries than what I've seen about Pac so far, just because, um, you know, her just, I, I just didn't realize how significant she was in the Black Panthers. You know, I knew that she, um, that she represented herself in a trial. The Black Panthers were uh, accused of of conspiring to 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 bomb multiple locations in New York City, and she was put on trial for that. And she opted to represent herself. We learn in the documentary, and we're not going to do too many spoilers here because we really encourage people to watch it. But we learned that that was a strategy that they took because they thought that she would have much more opportunity to talk directly to the jury and to the judge if she represented herself than if she was a defendant uh, on with an attorney, because she'd just be sitting there in silence and maybe take the witness stand, but be subject to cross-examination and all that. And so she effectively became a spokesperson for the Black Panther movement in court and was eventually exonerated. Uh, so just incredible. But but her story to me is 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 incredibly, incredibly compelling. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree. Um, and, you know, as we talk about the Hughes brothers, and, and do you know Alan or Albert at all? I have not. I've not met either one of them. I've interviewed them back in the day when American Pimp came to DVD, which was another documentary of theirs. And they were, you know, I was 18 years old, 18 or 19. 
the ambitions of becoming a screenwriter. And both of those guys were incredibly nurturing and kind to me just after interviewing them. And I had no agenda. It wasn't like, yo, I want to talk to you and, and like, you know, stay on your level. Um, but I just have, have really enjoyed their work and I have to give them credit because they've done some amazing things, the defiant ones, you know, this, what they've done far beyond uh, menace to society and, and, and dead presidents. Um, so yeah, it's great to see. And, and they're really good um, objective guys. And again, we'll talk about it maybe in a sec, but just even in addressing the conflict with Tupac in this, I thought was a really cool thing. There's some other stylized things of just using everyone's first name, which I thought were really interesting. But um, there's some other really heavy hitters involved in this docu-series. You want to talk about some? Yeah. So one is Nelson George, uh, who is a journalist uh, who has been around. He's like a, a true OG. I've had the good fortune of meeting him, almost did a program with him at BET, sat and chopped it up with him in the office for like an hour one time. And that was that was fantastic. Uh, another is Charles King, who is uh, was a former agent from CAA and a, a super uh, actually uh, William Morris, I believe, but now has a company called Macro, which has produced um Oscar-nominated films like Mudbone and uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, um, Fences, Sorry to Bother You. He's a real powerhouse. They just raised $150 million uh, from uh, Lorraine Powell Jobs, uh, Steve Jobs' widow, um, and from BlackRock and from others. But Macro's involved with this as well. Steve Berman from Interscope, who's a you know the, the CEO of Inter President, whatever the, the head of Interscope for quite some time, um, and then in terms of participants, you, you you said that they named them uh, by first name, but you want to talk about some of those? Yeah, and also I mean shout out to QD three Quincy Jones the third, who is also part of the production team, and you know he did Thug Angel back in the day, which I always thought was one of the great you know kind of Pac films of the two thousands, and he was also a producer for Tupac. Most notably did To Live and Die in L.A. from the Machiavelli album. But yeah, I mean, the talking heads are are really interesting. You've got Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, Mike Tyson, Eminem, Ox former manager, Atron Gregory, Idi Amin from the Outlaws, um, Afeni's sister, Gloria Cox, who goes by Glow, um, another one of Pac's former managers and friends, Leela Steinberg, um, from Digital Underground, you got Money B and Chopmaster J. And one of the people I really enjoyed, um, at least in the first two episodes, is Ray Love, who people might know through Mac Dre and Mac Mall, like one of the Bay Area rappers that, and he just, you know, we're going to talk about things we didn't know. Ray dropped some jewels in this. Um, but yeah, what an illustrious cast right there. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And you mentioned Defiant Ones a couple of times. It's one of my favorite docuseries of all time, just period, but certainly with music. One of the things that puzzles me about this is that this premiered on FX on a Friday at 10 o'clock, uh, 10 p.m. Now, having worked in a TV for you know 13 years myself, um, I know that that Friday night slot is typically, it's called the graveyard slot. Actually, it's uh, I, I was looking at it um online and there's actually a wikipedia page dedicated to it uh it's where you put shows that you want to bury because you don't believe in it or um you don't think it's going to perform well or, or or whatever the case i found it to be really strange that it would premiere at that time slot because this to me seems like a high priority for them i know that it's been getting a ton of uh, publicity i've seen promotions during the nba finals um or sorry nba playoffs well, 
does that strike you? Did you know about that that time slot? Uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, I used to love the show E True Hollywood Story, and they would always talk about these shows that you know you and I grew up watching, and then you know either when they started they didn't have a fair shot, or like later in life when they were kind of on their way out, they would move them. And I've heard of the graveyard slot. I think, you know, this one's challenging. I mean, we are in the midst, as we talked about, of playoff basketball. We're in the midst of a lot of things. But, you know, just by watching 10 minutes of this docuseries, you can tell how expensive it was to make. Like, this is big budget. And to your point, I mean, we we spoke in our last episode about the Jay Dilla documentary that's also on Hulu that's been produced through the New York Times. You know, I'm a cheapskate, so I have the version of Hulu where I get ads about every 10 minutes. Every time, every time I get an ad, it would be for Dear Mama. I would see it other places on linear television, online. So yeah, they've been going hard. And and absolutely the only other thing, and, and you have the TV experience, but like for the first two, because this is a five part, are they kind of soft launching it and then counting on people um, of watching it on demand on their own time? And by episode five, they'll move it to a different slot. I don't know. It's a head scratcher to me. You know, I'll, I'll take you through my machination. So part of me was thinking, okay, we're in the era of streaming to your point, And um, no one is is doing appointment television. It's very rare. No one is, you know, setting their clock and saying, you know, I got to be at home to watch this at this time. And so in a lot of ways, it doesn't matter. You know, people are going to watch it on Hulu or whatever the, the, the service is. But, you know, the, the other side of me says, they are still a linear network. There's still a network that has TV on, you know, and they want people to view at a certain time. They're definitely paid more uh, for people watching at that time and or within a day or so afterwards. I think about things like the Snowfall series finale and, you know, there's a thing called lead in. So typically if you have a show that's a high priority, you want to have something leading into that show that's also going to drive ratings in order to get as many eyeballs as possible at the show. And to me, the series finale of Snowfall would have been a perfect lead in for something like this. I got to think there's going to be a lot of overlap around the audiences. Uh, I saw a ton of promotion within Snowfall for this documentary itself as well. And that had to have been uh, probably the biggest. I haven't checked the ratings, but I would, I would suspect it was the biggest series um, rating of the year for FX. More than Atlanta, you think? Uh uh, was Atlanta this year or last year? Uh, I can't remember, man. Yeah. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think so. I think Snowfall ultimately was bigger than than uh, than Atlanta. But but we should check that. I'll check that. You know, once uh, in a second. But in any case, it would have been a huge opportunity. They could have used Dave uh, also, which is a high priority show. That, you know, featuring Little Dicky. Uh, there's just a lot of ways they could have like bolstered the uh, viewership um during a more conventional slot so it's weird to me I, I, I it doesn't make sense to me like no matter how how I slice it the other challenge and you and I have have spent almost a decade at times weighing this out is you know I love the fact of the film that they remind you that Tupac is not entirely a west coast artist I mean so much of his life between New York New Jersey and Baltimore is on the east coast I love the fact that the film does away with that misconception but one of the things that you'll find with Pac is that he has a West Coast following and a huge one at that, understandably. So to put it on at eight o'clock and know that it's going to be five on the West Coast, um, you know, and I know you can you can you can stagger it with television. But I feel like with these, I imagine, don't you think that it at 10, it was 10 on the East and 7 p.m. on the West? 
Like that's no, but how... they don't they don't do it simultaneous like that. They yeah. don't do in sports. No, okay. for for regular shows, they have you know different timing. Um, and that's my guy going crazy. Um, um, yeah, for regular shows, they 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 do it uh, Pacific time, and so it, it would be on at ten o'clock on Friday in the All West right. Coast too. So, well, that kills yeah. my theory. Yeah, right, man. I I, I don't know. Um, and so yeah, Snowfall. Um, I, I'll, I'll find. Um, I'll find um, it, it did do well. It did do well. But yeah. It would have been a great lead in. So I don't know. But in any case, um, I've found the documentary docuseries so far to be incredibly, incredibly compelling. Uh, the first episode, I'll say, was a bit hard to follow. I, I wasn't sure what the chronology was because they skip around with, with the timing. But by the second episode, I, I got where they were going, which is they were paralleling uh, Tupac's and Afeni's, uh timelines. Uh, you know, they were talking about the early arc of his career in life, and then they would contrast that with hers. And uh, I want to get into some of the themes because there's, there's a lot of parallel themes between them that they're articulating. But once I got that, by the time episode two ended, they started episode one with uh, the way they ended episode two. And when it first came on in episode one, it's like, okay, cool. We know this. Uh, there's some some special effects that were a little, little gimmicky for me and everything. But by the time they got back around to an episode two, I was like, oh, this is crazy. Like, And you didn't like the really finger really guns? Dope. Huh? You didn't like the finger guns with the... Not in the beginning, no. I thought, I thought that was like, I thought that was corny. Like, I loved it. I thought it was dope, man. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was mad corny. But like... Uh... <laughs> But but by the time they got back to it in, in in the in the in the second episode, like it was insane. Did it have that impact for you or, or no? Yeah, I mean, I think that the defiant ones, just because you're dealing with with music guys, and there's a there's kind of a more I think aligned arc between Jimmy and Dre. With Park and Afeni, it's different, and you're dealing with different times and a ton of context. And to the point we just made, I mean most people have been given Tupac's biography in some form or another books, previous documentaries, you know, just footnotes in, in series. Um, so we know that, but you have to catch up um, so many things. And with Afeni, I think that the series did a really good job, you know, presenting what the black Panther party movement was and all of that stuff. But you're right. Like I noticed that they were on a little bit different tracks, but right away I knew that they're trying to establish that parallel but that Halloween night 1993 thing, which begins the series and ends episode two, made perfect sense by the time you see, you know, all that there is to see at this point. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about some of the key themes. Um, you know, for me, what I saw was anxiety. You know, uh, Tupac was really played with anxiety in a way that I didn't realize. You know, it makes sense given all that we know about his life. Him being shot, uh, you know, on two different occasions, uh, you know, altercations with the police, the, the stuff with death row, which we'll get into, like he had a lot of anxiety. But what I didn't realize is that that led to actual physical results for him. And he had alopecia, it sounds like, um, which is why he ended up shaving his head. I never knew that, you know, um, that is, I always thought that was a fashion statement for him. And, you know, he, he always had the very thick eyebrows and everything, but that was a revelation for me. Another thing was activism. Uh, you know, Tupac was very much a revolutionary and, and seeing a Feeney story, you know, that was 100% in his blood. And also he grew up in it. And so that, that's a big, that's a big theme. Um, 
different personalities. And we'll talk about this too, uh, that Tupac had. And, um, and that's shown very visibly. Um, and you mentioned Thug, um, um, Thug Angel, which, uh, you know, has a very prominent high school interview that is featured in this too. And then how the past impacts the present is another thing too. And then times, times being cyclical, but were there other themes that, that you saw? Yeah. I mean, both, you know, Afeni and Tupac just had a dogged work ethic, you know, and I know that we, you know, history tells us, yeah, you know, Pac recorded All Eyes on Me in 14 days and we hear about the multiple studio sessions. But what I loved is the quality of the work ethic that this film presents, you know, Shock G, who I didn't mention him, I guess, yeah, Shock G, Money B. And the Shock G footage is um, archival, but there's still things that I don't remember ever seeing before. But he talks about, just Pac in those early days of willing to do anything to make it happen. Um, and just like, and there's another point in the film where they, they speak about like Tupac basically never sleeping, you know, just staying up and writing and, and, and smoking weed and watching, you know, listening to other people's albums and watching movies and watching interviews and reading books. Like this is somebody who, and we've heard this other places, but not in this way lived a full life in his 25 or so years. Yeah, and I'm sure that the not sleeping led to the anxiety too, heightened anxiety as well. Yeah. yeah so, so again, like, so one of the, the big themes is is Tupac's different personalities, and we've talked about this a lot over the years. We've written about it quite a bit, but we see it in like stark contrast um, with two interviews. Um, they they start with his earliest interview and one of his later um it wasn't his last but one of his his later very in-depth interviews um so one was 17 year old tupac at his performing arts school and this was in marin county marin, marin city county, yeah marin, marin city in california and then the other one is a um an interview with tupac in prison i, th- I believe that was done by kevin powell um you talk about the one where he has the the hair yeah yeah, was that done by? Uh, he did a, an interview for Vibe. I'm not sure if that's one was recorded or some, or, or someone else. I could be wrong. The sense I got of that second interview with him, you know, with Hair, is I think it feels like it's done almost for like a parole board of some kind. It feels like an institutional interview. Okay. Um, and the voice that I hear speaking, I don't believe is Kevin's. Okay. Okay. Um, but it's really interesting because those two versions of Tupac that we see are in stark contrast to the Tupac that we see in the death row days. And, uh, you know, even Tupacalypse now, the, the, the revolutionary kind of Tupac, um, you know, there's footage of him at conferences where he's cursing and like super aggressive and everything. 17 year old Pac was very, very sensitive and quiet and, um, you know, very easygoing, very easy, you know, quick to smile very, very gentle, um, and is a really, really striking, striking contrast. The second one the, in the prison was very similar in terms of energy. And now I've had the thoughts about that Thug Angel one, you know, the 17-year-old one, um, for quite some time. But it makes me think that um, one of the things we hear about Tupac is that he plays to the camera. And in, in this context, these two contexts, I suspect that... Um, the interviewers were, he, he was performing almost in, in a way that he was trying to present himself as uh, more conventional, more easygoing. And that is his affected voice for that. You know, did you have, did that, did, 
resonate with you? Or yeah, I mean, I think that definitely Tupac plays to his audience. I think that he was every bit as good of an actor as he was as an artist, even if he may have only had a few different chambers. Um, and and I, the other thing that I considered, you talked about anxiety early on. I mean, those are two points in Tupac's very short life where he did not presumably have much stress. And I know, obviously, you're behind you're but you're behind bars, but on a daily level you're not being pushed in 10,000 different directions. And, you know, we've seen over the years from Chuck D on down, like Pac was writing a lot of letters. He was being incredibly like thoughtful, you know, in that time. And not all of it, you know, was positive, but he had the time, he had the space and not everybody grabbing at him every five minutes. And I thought that that might be a factor as well. Yeah. But there's something different about these. Like, you know, I've seen tons of interviews of him like with MTV and, uh, you know, others of him speaking, and he's never had this kind of affect, this kind of affectation in his voice and his demeanor, um, aside from these two. So I'm trying to get at what it was, what the dynamic was in these two settings that caused him to present himself in this way. You know, uh, the 17-year-old, I think, um, I've always seen that as maybe us seeing the real Tupac, you know, um, you know, him being vulnerable. And, you know, this is what we hear, how Jada Pinkett describes him and how people close to him describe him as being sensitive, you know, the, 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 the poet, you know, the, that version of Tupac that we hear about. Um, the prison one, if it is truly correctional um, officers, Clearly, he's going to present himself in a way that makes him seem, you know, not dangerous and someone who's, you know, been um, rehabilitated it or, or whatever it is. And so, you know, I can understand that. But there's something I'm, I'm just trying to figure out because I've always been fascinated with what is the real Tupac. We hear yeah. he's a chameleon and we'll, we'll get into that. But I'm trying to figure out what it was about those two interviews that that caused him to present himself in that way. Yeah. And I was just looking to, you know, one of the folks that's that is um, the speakers in the series is Donald Hickman, who is Tupac's um, drama teacher in high school. And I just looked to see if, if you know, by chance he was holding the camera for that 17 year old, but actually he was Tupac's teacher in Baltimore. So mm -hmm. I don't think that's him because I do believe that that footage is from Marin City. Yeah, you can hear the voices. I think it's two it's two white women um, yeah. interviewing him. Um you can hear them talking to him. And so he's got a, he's probably got a different energy because it's women as well. You know, um, that could be part of it. We hear about that sensitive side with women, the, the, the bluster, the bravado tends to be more with dudes, even the Tabitha Soren interview where they're walking along the beach. Yeah. He's more, it's a more kind of gentle toned down version of him. It's funny too, how artists are that way. You know, you'll hear things like, oh, they get along well with men or they get along with women or they get along with people that, you know, and you and I have spoken a lot recently about the media and who artists want to speak to them. Um, so yeah, it's definitely interesting. But they make the point too of, you know, Tupac, and it's funny, this year was the first time I went to Marin City earlier um, at the top of the year, I was out in the Bay Area. And they talk about it in the film, but it's a place where, you know, there's a lot of money around, but especially in the early 90s, late 80s, there was also, you know, extreme poverty and, you know, the crack epidemic is alive. And Tupac, they even make the illustration in his back window, you see this, and in the front window, you see that. And I feel that, you know, all of these different circumstances allowed Tupac to play to that audience. I mean, he had 
the tattoo and it said laugh now cry later but of the two drama faces of the smile and the the tears and the frown and i i you know to get that tattooed would lead me to believe like you can be different things to different people so i think even if we don't have the exact answers we are getting at the same thing yeah yeah for sure you know in the 17 year old version of tupac said um that a girl told him he was too nice right uh and so he said okay cool like he's seeing these guys who are bad boys get the girls and so he became a, a player a bad boy himself so he took cues and, and responded you know when when uh when prompted uh you know so i want to talk about that too because uh, we've heard over the years people like mc8 and even alan hughes talk about how um tupac being a chameleon may have played a role in his death eventually you know um so one of the things that is that Tupac never had a record, like a, a criminal record before he made a record, uh, which I thought to be really interesting. You know, he grew up in really tough neighborhoods in Baltimore, like you said, in Marin City, um, but still uh, managed to avoid criminal activity at that point. And when he gets money and is, you know, presumably successful is when he actually starts to get into trouble. A lot of people speculate that that was because he needed to like make himself a tough guy or it was a, a reaction to his playing Bishop and Juice, which was that, and seeing the attention that that got. So MCA in an interview uh, said that he, meaning Tupac, felt like he was representing. He felt like because I'm associating myself with these dudes and I'm associating myself with the MLB, uh, you know, the, 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 the bloods gang, and I'm yelling it on records and F the game. This is the mob MLB. This is mob that he wanted to show that he really wanted to be loyal to them. I get it, but there's a certain things you d just don't do, uh, to want to belong, especially as a grown man, people are going to accept you for who you are. If you're just a rapper, you're just a rapper. So in that interview, this is him talking about MC8, talking about knowing baby lane, uh, Orlando Anderson, the person who, uh, is accused of killing Tupac. And um, he's saying that Tupac associated himself with gangs late in life and really wasn't part of that gang life. And that that behavior, that mentality is what led to the altercation with Baby Lane and ultimately uh, the retaliation which took his life. Yeah, and, and that's interesting because I feel like that that uh, that part of Tupac's life is often pinned on, you know, Suge Knight and Death Row, one of the things, and we'll talk about some of the things we learned in the film, is it's, um, I think it's Snoop that says somebody, yeah, that, that at pre death row, Tupac's security detail um, included Monster and Bone. And they don't elaborate, they show some B roll footage, but I took that to mean Monster Cody. Did you? I did. I took that to be Monster Cody too. Yep. And I took it to mean uh, Clay Bone Sloan, who, Folks may know, you know, as he plays basically himself in training day of like, you got to handle your own work, homie, which is one of the people that Suge Knight struck with that truck back in um, 2015. And, straight, and, set us straight out of Compton. Yeah. Yeah. And and Bone survived. I've interviewed Bone before. He, he worked on the documentary Bastards of the Party. Um, but it lets me know that Tupac wasn't new to being around, you know, L.A. based, you know, members of street organizations. You know, even you referenced the 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 you called it a scuffle in the film. I think it's a little bit more than a scuffle from the way that, you know, Tupac has spoken of it, the way that 
Alan Hughes has spoken of it, but the altercation, Snoop said something I never realized is that a lot of the people in Thug Life, and I don't know that Snoop means the group, I think he means kind of the organization, you know, something bigger, but Snoop says, if I heard him correctly, that they had ties to the Crips, which, so that behavior that Tupac has, you know, in September of 96, outside the MGM fight after the, I think it was Tyson Selden, that was going on, you know, four years earlier, three years earlier, so that just lets you know that that element was always there of playing to your audience. Um, and with that, you know, you spoke of the the woman that said he was too soft. One of my favorite points made in the documentary is from Ray Love, who talks about like a two week period where him and Tupac, teenagers, both broke, living in Marin City, you know, in the Bay Area, decided to sell crack cocaine. And Ray has this quote that I love, which he says, capitalism requires that your empathy level is low. And he basically said, like, Tupac could not, as the son of an addict, son of somebody who was in and out of recovery, as somebody who was educated on what, you know, crack cocaine and addiction, period, had done to strong Black leadership, um, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do that, neither could Ray. So they did it, and he even jokes that, like, you know, they probably gave stuff away. Um, and I just thought that that was really powerful so that even though you're trying to be, you know, a tough guy hustler, Pac wasn't built for that. And, you know, Pac's music is filled with many things, but I don't recall him, you know, in the first person glamorizing selling drugs. I know there's that famed line in changes of like, you know, yeah, but you made it in a sleazy way. But as a first person, which is very different from some of the other rap greats. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. I, I don't recall that either. You know, he definitely has a lot of lines about inflicting violence upon people. Uh, but I don't recall any like drug talk. Um, and, and it's fascinating because it's 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 very difficult to hear rap music that doesn't do that at this point, which right. is you know, a pretty, pretty stark commentary. You know, um, Alan Hughes made a point, too, about Tupac. He said to be he, he had to become such a great myth maker. To be a great artist, to be an artist, period, it comes from delusions. You're delusional if you're fortunate. Maybe a third of your delusions become art. Two-thirds of it is BS. I think the public saw Tupac's two-thirds, the delusions that weren't the art. Somewhere along the line, he chose to become a gangster. There's nothing more unartistic than a gangster. He lost himself to that lost role he played. Um, that's uh, Those are pretty, like strong words um and so you know going back to the scuffle the beat down whatever you want to call it that they had um you got to wonder even if there's no bad blood if he has this kind of a strong point of view on tupac if that affects the perspective of the docuseries makes you wonder when when alan hughes did that interview last year i was a little bit shocked because you know clearly you know, he's spoken of the issue a number of times, but he is kind of calling balls and strikes, um, you know, to say that. But I, I have a feeling, you know, and especially the way that he describes in the docuseries, it sounds like other people kind of put in the punches and kicks. And at the very end, you know, Tupac may have kind of had the last move. And I'm I'm purely speculating on, on what is said. But if somebody does that and then they go and talk about it on UMTV Raps or they talk about it in other places, that's got to be upsetting because like, did you do the work? Did you do what you're saying, you know, of, of beat my ass? It's just, it's, it's complex for sure. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like it's not just Alan says it, MC8 said lots of people say it. There's a friend in the documentary who said that he fit into every environment, uh, mimicking those around him and playing the role. So this is, it sounds to me like a pretty universal theme around Tupac. Um, and it's just, it's fascinating, like, um, which is why, again, like those two interviews are so compelling to me because I've always wondered what is the real Tupac? Well, I think of Tretch too. I mean, Tretch is not in the film in two episodes, but that famous line where Tretch sheds a tear and he says, Pac wasn't a thug, he was a soldier. And, you know, even that of like, you know, but you look at the word thug and, you know, that is something, especially late in his career, Tupac referred to himself as constantly. Um, So yeah, there's just that really, really interesting dichotomy there. So there's one interesting thing that that Alan Hughes says in the film. He says a lot of people are asking him what the theme is because it seems like there's a bunch of of themes. And he said that there's a lot of sub themes and the sub themes are the theme. You know, so you know, maybe I'm I'm thinking about this the wrong way. Maybe there wasn't one Tupac or a real Tupac. Maybe Tupac was multifaceted. And that's why we're so drawn to him. You know, he can rap about revolution and rap about, you know, uh, being with women and rap about partying and rap about, uh, you know, uh, shooting cops or, you know, or, you know, people being brutalized by police or whatever it may be. All of those things were Tupac. And so maybe we were just fortunate to see a lot of different sides of him play out at the same time. But um the ones that he leaned into later in life seem to lead to his downfall. Yeah. And you have to wonder if the ones that he leaned into later in life were amplified because it was what the media and to some degree, the fans were looking for. Like it was the most exciting thing. You know, you and I always use that analogy, shout out to Lupe Fiasco of food and liquor and the liquor later in Pac's life, you know, gets a lot more attention than the food. Yeah. So what what are some of the new things that you learned about Pac uh, so far? Just a couple, because again, we don't want to spoil. Yeah, no, I. It's interesting as we talk about that, and and this might be misrepresented in the film, but they at least present the fact that he secures the role of Bishop and Juice before signing with Interscope, like very close proximity of time. But Money B from Digital Underground says, like, look, I don't know why, but you know, I was I was approached about this role. Couldn't act to save my life. Brought Pac with me. Pac gets the role. Like, he's been, you know, destined to play. And, you know, that role starts making noise. And shortly thereafter, you have Tupacalypse. And that, for starters, for me, in my mind, I always thought they kind of took, like, you know, like Dave East going in the Wu-Tang series. Like, somebody who's on the come up. But, you know, I always thought that the music, and obviously, you know, like, same song and, and things were out. But I thought the solo career was a little bit established before Juice. Yeah, now we wrote an article about that. I think I wrote that um, a few years ago uh, because someone was detailing the audition. I think Money B, I can't remember if it was Money B, but some one of someone who was more famous than Tupac at the time went to the audition to be to to get the role, and Tupac just happened to like audition there on the spot and ended up getting it and. It was before. I think it. Was, I think it was Money B because um, they they were hanging together at the time because Tupac was supporting as, as a as a dancer. But yeah, it's it's fascinating uh, that he became famous for that before the music, you know. And and because of that, maybe that's why he he leaned into that role. 
But, you know, for me, like we talked about the alopecia, the other thing that really shocked me, and you may have known this, was that the Thug Life Co. was created by Matulu Shakur. And um, I always thought that that was Tupac's organization, his philosophy, but apparently it was created by his Black Panther OGs who were in prison, and Tupac was the spokesperson for it. I thought Mm. thought that was really fascinating. Um, You know, I didn't realize just how strategic all of that was. And when you see the documentary, you see... Just you see like, you know, how much the Black Panthers influenced him, um, not just through birth, but like throughout his life and even after after um, he was an adult. Yeah, I mean, with that, one of the things and I think this was illuminating for both of us, you know, that the Panthers, along with, you know, in large part with Afeni, wrote the first patient bill of rights for hospitals like that. That blew me away. I was watching with my fiance, who's not a novice Tupac fan, you know, um, and that that blew her mind as well. Like, it's really interesting. I didn't even know about those um, hospital protests in the late 60s and early 70s at all. I thought that was really interesting. I also, you know, again, the Hughes brothers confrontation with Tupac or altercation has long been covered, but there's footage that allows it allows me to understand a little bit where the Hughes brothers were coming from. They show um, some not part of the music video footage of his last third and final video that he did of When My Homie Calls. And Tupac was chippy. It was one of those situations where like, damn, I don't want to be here. And you look at you look at Trapped and you look at Brenda's Got a Baby. And, you know, that was a younger artist who was probably more in a place of servitude of, you know, similar to him coming in with Digital Underground. And at this point, be it stress, be it time, you know whatever reason he's like i don't want to be here get it right get me out of here and that can lead to you know some some challenges between creatives which you know we all run into yeah seeing some of that extended behind the scenes footage of that video was was really really cool too and i think overall my takeaway is that you know kind of like with the last dance this is a reminder of why tupac is so special and still being talked about you know, 30 years, um, you know, 30 years after his debut um, and uh, like almost 25, you know, since his death. Uh, almost so, 30. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Um, and so it's really it's really uh, amazing to see just how charismatic he was. And again, seeing his mom, too. You know, one of my biggest regrets in life is I wrote my third year paper in law school about the case that was brought against him uh, by the, the widow of a state trooper who was shot by a guy who said that Tupac's music induced him to, to shoot him. There's a, an amazing panel discussion in the in the in the docu series where Tupac is talking with people. People are coming at him and criticizing him for those lyrics and saying that he was suggesting. And he says, "Nope, I wasn't talking about cop killing. I was talking about police brutality and self-defense." And on this panel is a police officer. So it's really, that's a really crazy image to see. But I did my paper uh, on that, you know, arguing that his music was protected by the First Amendment, which which it absolutely was. And I always thought toward the end, I was like, you know, I should send this to Tupac. He was in prison at the time. And, um, you know, I wanted to send it to him to support him and, you know, give him something to read, like just the whole nine. And... I think that if I had done that, he probably would have written it and read it. And I just wonder, like, it's kind of like one of those what if moments, you know, um, I, I wish that I had done that at that time. But um, have you ever met anyone with with energy like Tupac or who reminds you of Tupac? That's a tough one. I mean, 
no one to that level of unpredictability. And, and in a, you know, I've met people with erratic behavior, but the potential to be great and the potential to be really, uh, you know, um, crazy at the same time. I, I put in that question to ask you too. And I've met cults of personality and cults of charisma, but I think it would be an injustice to Tupac to compare anyone else that I've met. What about you? Yeah. I, uh... I'm not saying crazy and or, or anything like that. Like I've met some people who have um, great artistic ability and also revolutionary mindset. Uh, a person who came to mind to me, um, actually, who I texted uh, during the show was Vic Minson. Mm. You know, Vic is someone who I believe to be supremely, supremely talented. And he's also um you know been very active in the streets in terms of like protests he's gone to ghana and and um led things there he has a, a military kind of mindset you know and he's had his scuffles with the with law enforcement as well you know um um and so i think he has he he reminds me a lot of tupac um in terms of artistic ability and revolutionary content you know Kendrick, for sure, you know, I think fits that bill also and is very vocal about being inspired by Tupac, says yeah. that Tupac came to him in a dream and is, is the reason why he's rapping. So I'd say that I would say those two for me. I mean, those are great answers. You know, I uh, a person, I guess, that comes to my mind is a little bit Killer Mike, um, you know, who we'll talk about later. But Mike, Mike's mind never stops working. And Mike also has the ability to you know be um revolutionary but also just let the id take over as well of like money cars women um but i can watch him as a leader rally the troops and get people to that level um you know dmx comes to mind a little bit but i don't think dmx was as um revolutionary minded just on the political social tip as Pac. Yeah, Mike is a good one. You know, we we saw what he did in 2016 and telling, you know, folks to take their money out of like white capitalist institutions and put it into black banks. We've seen him tell black people they weren't ready for revolution because they hadn't been trained with guns and with martial arts. Like, yeah, yeah that's a great one. That's a great one. Absolutely. And you mentioned that panel. That is something I don't recall ever seeing before. Um, yeah. And that blew me away. And I was watching and I was I was cringing because, you know, the, <laughs> there's one white woman that says like, you know, Tupac says, you don't, you said, she said something in response to him of like your people, the people and Tupac said, what do you know about my people? And she goes a lot and you, you watch the crowd and the crowd, you know, I did not see many melanated faces in the crowd and just Tupac on stage with these people one dude looked like he was in a metal band. You had the officer in uniform up there. It was, I got to find that and watch the rest of it. Cause I was, I was flabbergasted. Yeah. And he held his own. Uh, he, well, he was the the centerpiece, it just the charisma. He was so charismatic. That's the thing that like, that you're reminded of, you know, and that's why he was so alluring to people. With that, I mean, are there other, whether photos or footage that you saw that was especially illuminating for you? Uh, well, I mean, seeing the photo of him after the attack by being attacked by the Oakland police was jarring. You know, I'd, I'd heard about the attack, but to see the effects of it 
Like I didn't, I didn't realize it was that bad. You know, that was, that was definitely jarring. Seeing him with a high top fade with, with uh, bleach blonde streaks was wild to me too. You know, um, Tupac, you know, had a nose ring. Tupac was very like artsy in a lot of ways too. You know, um, those are not like the most thug like image images, you know, that, 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 that he, he took, but he embraced it all and like, you know, and, and did it with, 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 uh, with confidence. It's under, it's not a heavy hand, but they really do kind of paint the corners of Tupac's dedication to hip hop. At one point in the film, you know, in the interview, in that 17 year old interview, they say, you know, what got you into writing music? And he said, I started with poetry. And I mean, I own, as, as you may as well, like um, the rose that grew from concrete, you know, Tupac's collection of poems. And we see it. Um, it was wild to see him rap to the paid and full beat by Eric B and Rakim. Um, I think it's the Labor, Lady Liberty poem. And like to see him take a thing that looks like a poem on the page and wrap it to beat, you know, I know Tupac catches a lot of flack sometimes for his MC skills. You can't tell me nothing after watching that. And to do it, it looked like in a like a school talent show or something. There were some drinks behind him, but he was not an Interscope artist. He was a teenager with a dream. I thought that was really interesting. There's also footage of him speaking at a school with you see behind him brother jay and professor x and lin q like the x clan black watch movement folks and i th I sometimes think that we dismiss tupac's connection to the hip-hop community outside of features like this was somebody that was active and and you know made moves with other artists at the time and i really i love that and and with that um i just want to Huge props to the sound design and the music of this because they play paid in full. They take the beat and then fade it into Tupac rapping to it. And it really like, you know, we've we've all seen so much of this footage in different cuts incarnations before. But to do that is time staking and it really shows you everything that we're that I'm we're talking about. So I love those little efforts and Easter eggs out there. Yeah, that was super dope. And also hearing what might be the original version of Dear Mama, you know, hearing the origin story of, of Dear Mama and the fact that that uh, he wrapped that to his mom, um, you know, uh, at, at a really key moment, we won't reveal that. But then hearing it, you know, you hear the, the references to Sadie, uh, I think it's a, the, the Spinner's uh, um, version originally, R. Kelly covered it as well. Um, in the chorus the for dear mama you know um don't you know we love you um and but hearing it was set to that actual instrumentation originally or you know at some point hearing that version was was incredible really really moving so they did something else like that you know changes as we know it you know it was a track masters remix um two years after Pac died but that song you know it has elements of heaven got a ghetto which was a vinyl b-side and then that also was was kind of remixed and represented after um Pac passed they play the original demo and then and then you know they use the new version too and i just i love that like Clearly, this was done, and, and it's no su no surprise to me that Nelson George was involved because he is, you know, one of the true Yodas of covering hip-hop culture. Um, but there's just a lot of stuff that, that makes anyone who thinks they've seen everything, heard everything, going to appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing the, the rest of them, uh, yep. the remaining three. Uh, you talk about sound design and samples. We lost someone who 
was a really, really important source of samples for hip hop recently. And he's a, a native of your hometown. So you want to, you want to set that one up? Yeah. Rest in peace to Ahmad Jamal. Um, you know, I, I've spent half my life in Pittsburgh. I grew up there and it is a jazz city, but even later in life, um, my friend Rory Webb, who who manages the rapper Saba, we both come from Pittsburgh. He did an article in the city paper back in the day of Ahmad Jamal even saying he's concerned of Pittsburgh losing its jazz roots. But a pianist, a band leader, leader of a trio, a phenomenal musician with, you know, 70 years of a discography, you know, spanning that long, never um, won a Grammy. I think that that, as we talk about the Snoops and the Ice Cubes and the Scarfaces. It's important to remind um, of just what awards mean. In 2017, he did receive the Lifetime Achievement Award, but had made, I mean, he was an architect of cool jazz. Um, and yeah, it definitely embraced in sampling. And I think that it's a testament to the growing sophistication of samples. You look at the the James Browns and the P-Funks and the Charles Wrights and the you know, the things that folks gravitated towards. And then you get to the 90s, specifically 1994, you know, Pete Rock uses I Love Music for The World Is Yours on Omatic. Um, that same year, uh, No ID um, uses Dolphin Dance, a song you texted me this week for one of Common's best songs, Resurrection. Um, Day, uh, Jay Dilla used uh, Swahili Land for Stakes Is High on De La Soul. Like, And one of the things that I love about that sort of thing is when you sample jazz like that, it's not always just a loop or a baseline. Like you're looking at a place in a record that, you know, speaks to you and you do something with it. And it, you know, I love all of sampling. I love the evolution of it in hip hop, but I especially admire that nineties movement of premier and Pete and, you know, the whole digging in the crates crew and Q-tip on no ID and Doug infinite, like these guys um, on and on and on, you know, obviously Dilla, that did just that and and rest in peace to Ahmad Jamal if you love any of those records and you're not familiar with his catalog um definitely dive in it's music that endures long after it was released yeah that's one of the things that in digging into his catalog you know there's an argument that that surfaced when sampling first started that that it was stealing that it was not artistic and in hearing, you know, like you said, the people finding, well, first of all, just the, the expansive knowledge that rap producers have, the amount of records they have to listen to, the amount of genres, um, you know, just going through and finding what could just be a two or three second part of a song and making it into a full blown other song is just incredible. It's, it's, it's truly genius. Um, and I don't think that rap producers get enough credit, you know, uh, being able to, you know, pull out that gem and speed it up or pitch it up or pitch it down or whatever to make it into what it is. You know, we've seen like um, the, the shook ones uh, sample um, that, that Havoc did, like it took years and years and years for people to find it because he altered it. It's so much um, there's, and, you know, using a stove ignition, like, you know, um, just these guys are, are really, really, really talented musicians and geniuses. And um, hearing Ahmad Jamal and the way that they represented his music and introduced it to an entirely new generation, I think it's fantastic. And so, you know, um, I didn't know, I, I knew of Ahmad Jamal, I knew some of those originals, but 
just the breadth of it, the, the extent of how many classics he influences was mind blowing for me. And those are some of my favorite, favorite songs of all time. Resurrection, the world is yours and, and stakes is high. Like just, those are really, really masterful songs. And to know that he had a part in each of them is, is pretty crazy. Yeah. I wake up most mornings. If I'm not listening to the news, I start my day with jazz and keeps me level-headed, man. Yeah. So, uh, so something that's coming up, which could be likened to sampling, um, is there's been a wave of AI releases lately. So this is starting maybe five, six months ago. The dominant thing in the news cycle, maybe just 2023, has been uh, the release of ChatGPT um, by OpenAI, which is a company that is collectively funded by Microsoft. And um, I forget uh, what the other guys started um uh wasn't paypal but um consortium of, of uh, tech giants have created an open artificial intelligence system and um the chat bot that is has come from that is really really um interesting disturbing whatever adjective you want to put to it and that it feels very very human um the reactions um range from it being able to write screenplays instantly to uh, contracts to whatever it might be. It's also capable of making recommendations and creating filters and things like that. And so one of the applications of late has been, there have been a lot of people creating fake versions of songs by artists. So we wrote an article recently uh, of a about a Jay-Z song that was released, sounds just like Jay, uh, young guru called it, I think, frightening. Um, or and and Ninth Wonder said, "My God, like <laughs> just." And we wrote an article about it. And the crazy thing is, I used Chat GPT to write the article, and so all but like one sentence and the young guru quote is written by AI, um, just to emphasize the point of like how crazy this technology is um, so quickly. But um, there have been some. Uh, takes of Kanye doing uh, What Dreams uh, by J. Cole. Um, there's a new song by Drake and The Weeknd, um, you know, AI fakes that uh, was on Spotify, did 700,000 streams. Um, I think it may have charted at some point. It's really gotten to a point where you cannot tell the difference between the artist and the AI. And it to me is going to be as transformative, if not more so than Napster was back in the 2000s when it completely disrupted the industry, changed the way that we listen to music like uh, forever. Um, very much like what happened then, record companies are now going back and trying to like file lawsuits and, and uh, put the genie back in the bottle. But this is not something that has ever been successful in time. Like no. uh, you can never stop technology. And so, we're going to have to figure out what we're going to do. Like, But like, you're not going to be able to look at a picture and know it's real, look at a video and know it's real, listen to a song and know it's real. Anything that is on a screen or, or digitally produced is fair game. We're not, we're just not going to know what's real and what's not anymore. So it's, it's pretty insane. The truth is, is definitely in question. And that scares me. I mean, I did not listen to the song. I, uh, yeah, it just, it's, it's incredibly worrisome. And, um, it, it worries me professionally. I'll level with you. And, and I know that, that that particular genie has been out there for a while, but the fact that people can put 20 plus years into something, you know, building up a repertoire and a base of knowledge, 
and something out there can compete for you know literally no cost compared to and and get it wrong again manipulates truth and you know you you said napster and there's a economic aspect but remember in those early days where people would make mashups and try to present like you know tupac had worked with alanis morissette or yeah. you know big l and you know like all these crazy things and, and now it's just about to get real chaotic out here yeah, I've noticed that every time I've put something in a document um, or, uh, you know, given an example of AI writing something, you've never commented. Uh, is that is that on purpose? You yeah, feel, I mean, it's it, a it, way about it. It truly gives me anxiety. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it gave me anxiety last year when, you know, Capital, <laughs> for what felt like one weekend, signed a virtual artist um, like this this level of art meets science fiction is 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 concerning to me and we you know i have written about it i did when um you know there was the uh you know what, what was it the the chat gpt that was educating people on hip-hop you know or, or speaking as tupac had he had lived um uh, that yeah. whole thing and i was like oh man there's so many factual inaccuracies here it's it's just it's it does it does worry me greatly I find it very interesting because there was a distinct negative reaction to that artist. Uh, you know, FN Mecca was the the AI artist that was signed by Capital. People had a real knee jerk, like visceral reaction against it. Yeah, but people are embracing these um, these deep fakes of like The Weeknd and Drake. Like a lot of people are saying, it's it's you know a fire song, and like you know Drake is in his bag and and stuff like that. What do you think? That that people are viewing this differently than just a completely fake uh, artist. I don't know. I mean, I think that people are first of all like a little bit turned on by the anguish here of like, yo, this must piss off these artists, or just being nonconformist of like, yo, I won't lie to you, it's jamming. Like, you know, it's. I think there's just that aspect versus with, um, you know, the artist. I didn't even know that's how you pronounced it. F and Mecca. Um, that was something that was designed by somebody else that was presented to you. And it was almost like, we're the idiots. But now it's like, well, we're in on the joke. And, you know, I've seen memes online of like Donald Trump's voice and Joe Biden's voice arguing with each other. Um, and I've found it funny. And, and I, that's not even to the degree of sophistication that we're talking about with artists. But it just, it absolutely, you know, I'm, a, I'm the type of guy that gets upset when there's a fake artist out there named DJ Quick that appears in my release radar on a Friday, like people game the system, I get angry because I just treat art with that much value. And this one, this one just worries me. It's a weird legal argument, you know, because it's not actually, you're not actually infringing upon a recording that's owned by a record company and right. you can do parody, you know, um, there's an argument that it's parody uh, you know, you can do sound alikes, you can re-record songs, you got to pay the publishing if you do that, but you don't have to pay the recording. So like, I think it's a really murky territory legally, economically, you know, so economically, it's going to hurt record companies, I believe more so than artists, because artists often, even with streaming, don't get paid a ton off recordings. They make their money mostly through merchandise and through live performance. And so, uh, you know, we were getting to a, a, a state where with streaming, they were going to make more money with uh, with sound recordings. But, you know, this might start to like chip away at that and, and, and kind of put them back to where they've always been. 
But it makes me think, you know, should artists be touring? If, if, if so, if, if this song by The Weeknd and Drake is a hit, should they just lean into it and and start performing that song themselves? Like, I mean, um, there's 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 a lot of crazy ways you could go with this. They need to get those attorneys that work with the Marvin Gaye estate on Robin Thicke and the Tom Petty and Sam Smith thing. Like, get the best attorneys out here. Um, but I think no matter what, I'm joking. But the horses are out guys, of the- one of those guys is my uh, is the the uh, uh, lawyer I used to work for. Nice. Yeah. We need yeah. we need him. We need yeah, him on the shout out to Mark Levinson who also represents DJ Premier. Word. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, yeah. man. So what else what else we got this week? Yeah, I mentioned Killer Mike. I, you know, we in looking at the year ahead, we're at we're in Q2 right now. He has a solo album, which is not something we've seen from Mike in some time. It's titled Michael. Usually when an artist uses a name, um, like their name, it's all it's a level of of personality and depth um looking forward to this the features included are andre 3000 little wayne dave Chappelle is involved future um earlier this week i didn't catch it did you there was a snippet of the song with three stacks and future um it's called scientists nah. and engineers i nah, i've heard it i'm not really for the same sort of thing we're talking about when a snippet releases unless i have to wear my news journalist hat i don't really check for it um, I want to experience it properly and good speakers, something I think I learned from you. Yeah, um, sometimes we get head fakes too. Like we got a head fake last week, you know, Swiss Beats released a, a song and uh, a lot of people ran with the fact that there's going to be a collaboration between Lil Wayne and Jay-Z, which ended up being uh, what Swiss and Lil Wayne did recently with DMX, where they had a vocal sample of Jay in the chorus, but there was no verse or anything like that. There was no participation by Jay. So yeah, snippets. Yeah. If that was Jay, uh, that was a great Cassidy collabo. I'm a hustler, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I look forward to it. And, and, and um, several people got to attend a listening. I don't think you or I did, um, but this album will be something, something truly special. Uh, Mike did release a new, new single, um, called Don't Let the Devil. It was produced by LP. And let's not forget that before Run the Jewels was, you know, a top duo in hip hop, L had produced Mike's R.I.P. album. So I, I've enjoyed that record. I played it a few times this week. That, um, yeah. Did you want to talk about Frank Ocean? Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, I will say that I'm looking forward to hearing Mike on some non-LP beats. You know, um, I love Ronda Jules. I love what they do together, but I like them mixing it up. And, you know, just like we've seen Black Thought working with different producers, I think it brings different things out of an MC when when he or she works with different producers. So I'm looking forward to to hearing that. Check it out, Michael. I agree. So Frank Ocean, um, there was there was huge fanfare about Frank Ocean headlining Coachella. And this is his first performance in a number of years. Uh, he hasn't released an album in a long time. And so there's a lot of anticipation that this might bring new music, but just, and he's also very low key. Frank, Frank Ocean is one who kind of disappears when he, go, when he um, is not in the spotlight. So last weekend uh, was his first performance and it was by all accounts a disaster. He was surrounded by screens. Uh, there was a crack in the screens or, you know, a, a break between the two screens. So you could see him just a little bit, he seemed to be seated quite a bit. Uh, what you could see, he was surrounded by people who were circling him, walking around, and it just seemed, and you know, it seemed like the the playlist was not in any particular order. There's a lot of chaos around it. 
And this weekend he was supposed to follow up and ended up pulling out of it. Now we've gotten conflicting reports, um, which I think are actually reconcilable. Um, so supposedly Frank Ocean had a bicycle accident. Coachella is gigantic. If you, if you haven't been to Coachella, it's um, a gigantic uh, space. It takes a long time for when you enter to walk to the actual performance fields. Uh, there are multiple stages that take five, 10 minutes to walk walk to. It's, it's a really, really big ground. And so uh, apparently there are bikes for artists to use to get around. And Frank had a bike accident and fell. Um, had two fractures in his leg and uh, tore something in his ankle too. So really substantial injury was told by doctors not to perform supposedly, but decided to do it. And so uh, allegedly there were supposed to be ice skaters uh, skating around town. This is all supposed to be set on ice. Maybe he was supposed to be in skates too. And so that explains the people kind of circling him. Sounds like they tried to replicate it. But um, I should also say that it went on. He came on like an almost an hour late, and um, apparently they were supposed to, they they the ice uh, rink was was already set up, and they had to dismantle it within that time, wow. which led to a lot of disruption. And um, you know he had to be seated because he couldn't he wasn't mobile, he couldn't get around. So there's a lot of stuff that, and this is all very last minute. Uh, he made the decision with, uh, three hours before to not go with the original um, set. And so it just it just was a domino effect. And so this week he pulled out. I'm not even sure who replaced him. Did you see who replaced him? No, him? I didn't. Yeah. So, I mean, you're bummed uh, as, a, as a Frank Ocean fan for this. Um, I'm sad. Like, I love Frank Ocean, I th- I, you know, ever since the, the mixtape with uh, Novocaine on it. Um, I've been a huge fan of his um, and rooting for him, but this was definitely not the way to come back after a long hiatus. You know, just a real quick question. I, uh, I've never attended Coachella. I've never really wanted to. You've gone a few times. Is it a good time? So uh, I've gone the first time, the first two times was fantastic. Um, You know, just with a group of friends had, you know, great time. The third time was mind blowing, but like I had super, super VIP access. Uh, I was backstage, you know, walking around, talking to, you know, different artists and things like that. But then also when it came time to for the show, they walked you right in and there's like a, a, a space in front of the, the very front of the crowd. So you're literally right at the stage and you just walk in and like see the stage, see the show from very front stage. That was incredible. I saw a great disclosure performance. Um, I saw LCD sound system. Um, I saw a bunch of people like that. That was super, super dope. I wouldn't go back now if I had to to just have a general admission experience. I'm too damn old for that. It's it's, it's hot, too much dirt, um, you know, fighting too many crowds. Uh, I'd be out there looking like somebody's grandpa. I'm not trying to do that. Uh, so. The first time, though, I went to... Um, uh, the EDM tents for the first time in my life. And that was unbelievable. Really? It's crazy. The energy is, is insane. Um, I saw Lil B there. I've se- I saw Drake when he performed. I saw Kanye uh, when he performed. Seen some great shows at Coachella. Uh, but generally for me, I like smaller venues. I think the sound is better. I think it's a more quality experience. So, yeah. Yeah, it always looks like a status uh, event anymore. And I know like a lot of things, South by Southwest and different festivals, that tends to happen. It's a destination. 
But, you know, when I saw this, I wasn't all that surprised that, you know, the the performances weren't on scale with everything else. So I'm surprised to hear you wouldn't be interested in going. I know what a music lover you are, obviously, but you also like enjoy like uh, Roots Picnic and, and stuff like that, right? I do. I do. But I think, you know, the Roots Picnic has done a really good job of, of feeling small and communal. And it's not fair for me to speak on Coachella because I haven't attended um, but I watched, you know, between 2000, the late 2000s and the teens, I watched how South by Southwest had kind of changed. And instead of being able to pop into any little given showcase, you either needed, you know, VIP access or you needed a million badges. Like the intimacy and the ease can can go away. And when I when I see Coachella right now on my timelines, it's people, you know, riding Ferris wheels and swings more than it is taking in music. And I know I sound like a grumpy old man, but it's like if the music is what started the festival, keep it about the music. You sound older than I do, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm somebody's great grandpa. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I, I take that back. I, I might go for the right lineup um, because I, the so the last big festival I attended was Lollapalooza in 2019, summer August 2019, and uh, I remember seeing Donald Glover there. And I was all the way in the back. Like, I didn't feel like fighting the crowd or anything like that. I was all the way in the back. And dude, it was a mind-blowing show. Hearing him perform feels like summer live. And like, but Donald, like Donald's just so special. Like I, I saw him at South by Southwest um, twice in two nights. Uh, the first night was in a living room as a rap genius thing. And it was probably like 50 people. And it was just him, a keyboardist and like a bass player and He's saying tomorrow by Tevin Campbell, well, Quincy Jones, but Tevin Campbell's wow. uh, vocals just destroyed it. He did a uh, acoustic version of uh, Pink Toes. Um, you know, it was just it, like hair standing up on your arm, like just chilling, just so good. And then the second night was in a big uh, field of like probably 25,000 people and also just great. So he's, he's special. So for the right performer and seeing like Kanye and Drake or not Drake so much, but Kanye, like for the right performer, um, it's dope having that kind of communal vibe. So I, I'll never, I won't say never. I won't say never. Again. I won't say never either, but yeah, I mean, unless it looks like a lot of work to me. We're know? going to Coachella next year. All Let's, right. You and me. We're going to do a live podcast on a phone next year from Coachella. People won't be able to hear shit. We'll make Frank, <laughs> exactly. Frank, Frank Ocean's concert look great. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's funny, man. Um, so as we get out of here, any new music you referenced the um you referenced the Little Wayne song on Swiss's album. Swiss put out an EP, uh six songs. It's the second in the hip hop fifty series. Uh last July we got the DJ premiere, the first one, which you know was very bountiful for, for folks like you and me. Um are really and I said it then, I'll say it now. My favorite song on that one was the Rhapsody and and, Rem, and Remy Ma, appropriately titled Remy Rap, on an album that had Wayne, had Nas, had Run the Jewels, had Joey Badass, Slick Rick. Um, this one, I will say similarly, you got a lot of heavy hitters on there. Jada Kiss, Benny the Butcher, um, Little Wayne, Nas. But my favorite song on it for me was a Jay Electronica collaboration called Halas. Yeah, man. Um, this one, uh, full transparency, was a disappointment for me. You know, the the premiere one uh, was super dope. It's the first time we've ever put every song from a project onto the playlist. Oh, right. Um, we put all five songs on it. Um, and so I had a really, really 
high hopes for this one, especially, you know, coming in with that, you know, reported Jay-Z Lil Wayne collaboration. I was like, oh, this is going to be super ill. And, um, you know, you know, I've never been a huge Swiss production fan, you know, uh, just not, it's just not, not my, um, style that the, the sense and um you know there's there's certain songs i like some of the jay stuff he did but generally and you know obviously like uh rough riders anthem and stuff like that like are you know top notch but there's certain bags that he gets into that just aren't my thing and um this was that bag for me you know it sounded a lot like those kind of late late 90s productions that were heavy synth and so um but the one that deviated from that is the jay electronica one incredibly soulful, um, very melodic. And that one I love. Um, top of the playlist this week, Jay Electronica. You know, he he's a man of a uh, few verses, but when he does do them, he makes them count every time. And, uh, you know, he's just great. Like uh, you mentioned the significance of the song and the timing. You want to you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm no expert, but I'm part of a blended family. It arrived with the beginning of Eid, you know, the end of Ramadan, and you know, um, halas being Arabic for like enough, like finished. And the way that Jay starts the song lyrically, um, you know, conjures that. I actually thought there were a lot of similarities between this and, and I believe Exhibit C, just the way that Jay mentions all these different places, letting you know that he's kind of this can pop up anywhere all at once, super stream of consciousness. Um, you know, you and I talk a lot. I mean, we, we, we speak of Tupac. There's a lot of artists sometimes that um, I think will call a song done while the pain is still wet. And I think Jay Electronica is one, like he is not totally in pocket with this, but somehow it works. And, and Swizz, in my opinion, I think this is a better song. And I like the written testimony in 2020, but I prefer this song to anything on a written testimony. So this is my favorite Jay Electronica song in, in quite some time. But I am, I think, a bigger Swiss Beats fan than you. Love the stuff he's done with Jay. Obviously, the stuff he's done with DMX. But from T.I. and Cassidy and Lil Wayne and so on and so forth, um, Swizz has this ability to be super versatile. And this is not the type of beat that you're thinking of when you think of those keyboards and like Swizz beats, there's other places on the album that's, that's there. And one other point, I mean, we didn't. Well, oh. I want to go back to one thing you said, because Jay electronic talks about this in the song too. He says that he got a lot of criticism uh, or he got some, there was some, some uh, criticism around a written uh, testimony. Um, you know, he references that line. He says, you know, there was sniping back then. So he went away for three years. Yeah. Do you recall that? Because like my recollection is that that album was met with pretty much universal acclaim, nominated for a Grammy, um, you know, uh, like 2020, you know, right around lockdown. A lot of people found it to be kind of like a, a silver lining at that time. Like, so I, I thought I, I didn't catch I didn't know why why he was making that reference. I did see some criticism. I've seen some recently that people were gassed up by it, you know, just because that was his first ever full length release. Um, I've seen people say like, yo, it's time to like, you know, stop being so hyped. I saw other people at that time point to the fact that Jay-Z was on what more than half of the album. And people say like, if you do that, What's that going to do for you? And you couldn't do more with this. Um, neither you nor I said that, but I remember that being in the space. And J 
Jay Electronic is very funny man on social media. So I think he took notes someplace and had that little chip on his shoulder battery in his back. It's yeah. interesting too. You mentioned Vic Mensa um, in the verse. Jay mentions all the times he's popped up and how he's good with all of these different kind of corners of hip hop. I, I just, it, it reminded me of the Jay Electronica I really look forward to hearing and full transparency, you know, Jay has said things and done things, um, especially over the last decade that have been head scratchers for me. Um, you know, disses and comments he's made on social media where he may or may not have been under the influence. But this one just kind of reminded me of of what a talent he is and can be. Yeah, no, I thought I thought this was super dope. Probably. And it's interesting too on the album. Uh, not my favorite song, but there's a joint called "Take Him Out" with Jada Kiss, Benny, and Scarlip, and it is kind of a little bit of a homage to Onyx's uh, "Throw Your Guns," which I thought was interesting for the hip hop heads out there. Yeah, yeah. And Lloyd Banks dropped uh, Curse of the Inevitable 3. I have not listened to that yet, uh, but uh, have you have you, have you you checked it out yet? Yeah, I played it twice. I sent you a song recently. You know, Lloyd has put out three projects in as many years and, you know, no longer, um, you know, signed to G-Unit, no longer it appears in um, Close Graces with 50 Cent. And I got to give it up, like... To me, of those three albums, and I will tell you, I've never been, I've been a fan of G-Unit, the group. I've never been the biggest Lloyd Banks solo fan, even with his, you know, bigger albums, those two or three, uh, between what, 2003, 2004, and 2010. This body of work, I think he's got really good production. Um, He's not working with the Dre's and the M's and the Scott Storches of the world. Um He's, you know, he's working with on this album, there's Vidon, who's done a lot of stuff with um, Smoke Dizza and ASAP Rocky, different people. And then there's a lot of folks I got to say I haven't heard of, but he's got some features on here on the playlist. We've got 101 Razors, which came out a few weeks back, his collaboration with Method Man. But on here, he's also got Cormega, which is a song I really like called Deceitful Intentions. Vado's on here, 38 Special um Dave East and then he does have Tony Yayo kind of bringing that Queens G-Unit connection full circle but it's a very thoughtful album I think you know Banks is the PLK the punchline king he will there's times where I feel like in the past he hasn't always let people into his world on this one um there's a lot of wisdom in here he has a song called Daddy's Little Girl that's dedicated to his daughter for changing his life there's just some real depth and it sounds good it's an easy um, just kind of lean back, listen. I'm not skipping through this album like I have some others. So props to Lloyd Banks. I, I know there's people out here that are really singing the praises for what he's done with these three volumes, and uh, I'm happy to be one of them. That's dope. That's dope. Uh, so what's your song of the week? Man, I got a little sun on my face. I texted it to you a few days ago. I'm going to go old school. Well, not old school, but I'm going to go 20 years ago. Large Professor has a joint called In the Sun with Q-Tip from his first class album. I love that song. I think it is an example of why Extra P is, for as great as he is as a producer, is every bit just as great of an MC. And um, that song and those lyrics have had special resonance for me this week. But uh, what about you? I'm going to go with Ice Jackets. Uh, That is one um, that... I, I'm sure I heard before, but it's Nimlo, Static Selector, and Bun B. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just so soulful. Bun is in his bag. Everybody's on their in their bag on it. And Stat, I think Static produced it. Um, yeah, produced the whole uh, album. 
Yeah, um, it is. It is incredible. Um, it's it's one that really, really resonated with me um, after hearing it. Um, it's on the playlist also, but that one I think is super dope. In terminology and Planet Asia are on it. It's you know you got one four great MCs on there. Five. I mean, it's it's loaded up and static is is super prolific. So um, yeah. yeah, great, great, great stuff. I'm glad to hear you picked that and. I, I really was happy when I saw it on the playlist too. So yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, man, until, uh, until we do it again. Yeah, man. And so anyone who's made it this far, please like subscribe, uh, comment, uh, hit us on notifications. We love like corresponding with folks and hearing your thoughts about this. So appreciate your time as always. And yeah, get ready for goat rap crew, BT. Let's go. It's about to be big. All right, for man. Sure. Peace. All right, peace.